You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In his introduction to George MacDonald's Fantasties, C.S. Lewis credits the novel with baptizing his imagination, giving him a taste for the good and the numinous that led ultimately to a Christian conversion. Some might use that same turn of phrase about Lewis's own Narnia series, finding in their first introduction to the lion Aslan the beginnings of a desire for Christ himself. But what of Tolkien, Lewis's fellow inkling? If we immerse ourselves into Tolkien's Middle-earth stories, into what spirit have we been baptized? According to Craig Bernthal, that spirit is a profoundly Catholic one, one especially alive to the workings of divine grace in human life. In his book, Tolkien's Sacramental Vision, Bernthal presents a profoundly theological reading of Tolkien, showing that the good professor's Catholic faith is heard in Middle-earth not merely as grace notes, but as the central theme of the whole. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this Christian Humanist Profiles, and with me today is Dr. Craig Bernthal, professor of English at California State University, Fresno, and author of Tolkien's Sacramental Vision, Discerning the Holy in Middle-earth. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Bernthal. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, sir, before we get into a discussion of your book, uh, is there any other introduction of yourself that you'd like to make? Well, I can give you a few relevant facts, perhaps. I've been an English professor for 27 years Mm. and um, am almost on the way to retirement. Um, I had a delightful year writing this book on Tolkien. I just took a leave to write it, and I felt that there was something that I wanted to say about Tolkien that I wasn't getting at. Uh, in some of the classes that I taught, but was was sort of skirting around it. And it was this sort of um, baptism of the imagination that you mentioned, which I think is uniquely uh, Tolkien. So um, I'm not a cradle Catholic. I was born a Missouri Lutheran and uh, didn't come into the Catholic Church until I was about 50. So Tolkien, for me personally, was one of my introductions to the Catholic Church. I learned a lot about Catholicism through him. So you would say that this is not uh, not a purely scholarly project, but one that's more personal as well? Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a personal project. The delightful thing for me about writing this book was I didn't really give two cents about what an academic audience would think about it. I wasn't writing for professors. I was writing more for me and for my students. Excellent. Well, one of the things I appreciate most about this book is the depth in which you consider Tolkien as a Catholic author. Um, That's something that in most of the stuff I've read is, is either nodded at and then other things are, are are addressed or, or scampered over quickly. Um, But you settle into that, especially in the details of his biography and, uh, his correspondence as well. So could you sketch out for our listeners why a deeply theological reading of Tolkien's Middle-earth works is an appropriate thing to do? Well, I would say there are four reasons why it's an appropriate thing to do. Okay. Uh, it's mostly based on his, his writings. Uh, first of all, simply his fiction by itself, and this is especially true of The Lord of the Rings, has presented over the years to many people, certain obvious Christian um, ideas. 
we have the resurrection of Gandalf. We have Lembus bread that the elves eat, which seems suspiciously like a communion wafer, and that it, mm. it does better if you, you do better with it if you fast before you eat it, and uh, it gives you mm. great strength, and Gollum can't stand it. Um, more than that, though, I began to find uh, that Elbereth, for instance, um, and Galadriel key into a Marian idea, which I really had not been cognizant of at all uh, growing up as a Protestant. Uh, it's fairly new to me as well. Um, so there are these features in his books. Uh, Frodo's trudge up Mount, up Mount Doom is the Via Dolorosa. Uh, Sam becomes Siren of Cyrene, carries him up the hill. So there is nothing particularly new or original about those ideas. I think the second thing uh, is, uh, and the Silmarillion, which I'll say more about later, also supports all of this. But his letters do more than suggest a Catholic reading. His letters to me almost demanded. If you read through um, all of his collected letters, he simply says uh, flat out in several of them that he intends it to be a, a Christian and Catholic work. Not in a ham-fisted or allegorical kind of way. He says that these elements are dissolved into the narrative, and then you have to figure out what he means by that. Mm. Uh, but there, in some letters, he's very forthcoming. Um, he talks about Frodo's plot line as being based primarily on two petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Um, mm. Lead us not into temptation, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Mm. And if you're familiar with that story, I mean, you can see how this works out with Frodo and Gollum. Uh -huh. Gollum, despite the danger, he um, he's finally, in a sense, led into temptation and that his will is overpowered at the end. Uh -huh. Tolkien explains in that letter. So the letters are a, are a huge resource here. I think even a bigger resource, though, are the essays, the critical essays and a few other things that he wrote before he ever got to The Lord of the Rings. The Monsters and the Critics, mm -hmm. On Fairy Tales, uh, an epistolary poem that he wrote to C.S. Lewis uh, shortly after their very important uh, midnight walk on Addison's Walk in Oxford. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, I think a great short story that not too many people know about, unfortunately, Leaf by Niggle, which is a straight allegory from the man who says he hates allegories. So, right. You take all those textual references, and then you look into his biography, and, and a, a Christian reading of Tolkien, to me, becomes almost unavoidable. People do, but I, I don't find them convincing. Most of the time uh, when I've uh, when an, a writer that I'm, I'm looking at seems to want to avoid it is they'll throw up Tolkien's uh, comment about having a version to allegory that he has in the the preface to the Lord of the Rings, yes. but, but you're confident that you're not making those kinds of moves that Tolkien himself would have disapproved of. No, I don't, I don't think I am. Um, Tolkien has also a couple of very important letters. One of them is to Milton uh, Waldman, one of his editors. I don't know who the other was to right off the bat. It might've been another one to Waldman. Um, he says that although he doesn't like allegory, he recognizes that an interpretation of his work would have to use allegorical language. Mm -hmm. And he makes a distinction between allegory and application. Mm -hmm. 
So if you take a straightforward allegory, like Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, uh, there is very little room for interpretation in that work. It, it doesn't give you a lot of room to maneuver. Una is the Church of England. The Red Cross Knight is England. Duessa is the evil Catholic Church, and uh, and on and on. Everything lines up nice one-to-one correspondence, so it's a perfect allegory. Uh, Tolkien would rather operate in the realm of symbol. I think he owes a lot to the Romantic poets. Mm-hmm. And so he wants his story to have wide application. So if you are reading, as some of my friends do, um, Saruman as Adolf Hitler and Sauron as Stalin and the ring is the H-bomb, Tolkien would cringe. He mm-hmm. might. I think he would admit that, okay, those things those ideas in the book can be applied to these kinds of historical events, but to limit them to one thing in that way is an impoverishment of what he's trying to do. Uh, He's trying to make the kinds of moral statements that cut across any specific historical situation that you might link them to. Um, Can I, can I, is that clear or should I say more? (laughs) No, I think that, I think that makes good sense. Um, Well, there, there's also uh, he he doesn't name anybody uh, Red Cross Knight or Holiness or Envy. He doesn't he doesn't deploy those general markers of allegory. So oh no, Frodo <laughs> goes to Rivendell and Lothlorien, not the House of Holiness or uh, the House of Pride. So yes, even though if the effects may actually be pretty similar. Um, yes, they may. But we'll we'll get to those things. Um, <laughs> In uh, in your second and third chapters, uh, you talk about Tolkien. Well, in your second chapter, you talk about Tolkien's ideas about creativity, and then you transition from that into the creation story of Middle Earth, and it's really a very smooth transition. So, and you and you do this in the book. So, sort of walk our listeners through it if you could. How is Tolkien's own creation myth for Middle Earth in some ways an outworking of his own theologically rooted ideas about what story is and how it connects to human creativity and the divine logos? Well, that only (laughs) takes about 100 pages in the book, but I'll see what I can do. Uh, Well, let's start out with the idea that man created in the image of God is himself a sub-creator. Uh, this is a critical term that Tolkien uses in on fairy stories, so that we are made to create, and this means that we are given a certain uh, amount of free will in order in order to do that. Um, Tolkien's creation myth starts with one god, Eru Iluvatar. Uh, propounding a musical theme to a group of Valar, which are essentially angels. When you read the Silmarillion, many of these these angelic uh, characters have characteristics that would uh, make you want to think of the Greek and Roman pantheons. But nevertheless, they're angels, they're creatures themselves, and derive from uh, the ultimate creator, Iluvatar. So, He gives them the free will and the privilege of helping to create the universe, essentially. He propounds a musical theme, and then they sing along with it. And then 
as at the culmination, and we'll leave out the bad angel for a while, Morgoth, mm-hmm. he takes their music and he actualizes it as light. He, ba- he essentially says, let there be light. And, and he, they see what they've sung as a kind of three-dimensional light sculptor sculpture. And then he says, if you want to help bring this into being, go into the world and bring it about. And the ones who do want, decide to do that. This is reminiscent of the first creation story in Genesis, at least, let there be light and there was light. And also uh, the portion of Proverbs where Lady Wisdom helps to create the world. She says, I was there in the beginning with God. And she's basically the helper of Old Testament Christ figure, really. And uh, the Book of Wisdom, we get something very like that passage in Proverbs. And then, of course, we've got the prologue to John, where we combine the Word, you know, with light. Jesus being described not only as the Word, but as the light of the world. So there are a bunch of elements there. And I got very interested in the word logos and the history of that word and found out more about Stoic philosophy in the process of writing the book than I had known at the beginning. Um, the Stoics saw used, used the word logos as a term to describe both the rational plan of the universe and the action of bringing that plan into being. Hmm. And their main philosophical point ethically was live within the dictates of the Lagos. I mean, the, the Stoics are an amazing um, background against which Christianity develops, I think, because they, they pave a lot of the way for the Christian conversion, I think, of, uh, of the Greek world. Um, well, what you have then in that first chapter of the Silmarillion, I argue, is something very much like the prologue of John. Uh, if you look at the history of the church and its ideas about the Logos, they're very Greek. Uh, and at a very early point, they associate it with music. And I think they're working off a Pythagorean uh, tradition there, but they're also referring to angelic choruses in Isaiah, and they, they bring these two strands of culture together. And um, so, and, and C.S. Lewis, by the way, is very much aware of this because he has Aslan sing the world into being in the, the Narnia tales. So if you associate that music of the Velar with the Logos and the light also with the Logos, I think you have a very Christian creation myth in the Silmarillion. Not altogether, because uh, instead of having the... We have a sort of celestial fall, the fall of Lucifer, which, you know, we vaguely hear about, I think, in the book of Daniel, um, take place as one of the main elements of Tolkien's creation story, Iluvatar's... excuse me, Morgoth's anger and dissonance are built right into the music that God actualizes, allows the Velar to actualize. So there is a kind of um, conflict already woven into the fabric of the universe between good and evil. Tolkien himself addressed that point. He says, you know, that isn't specifically Christian. Mm. Um, Although, um, if we assume angelic conflict before the creation of the world, I don't really see that it's all that far off. So, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> so if you we if you start there, um, you're starting with the idea, um, 
of of God as Logos being imminent in the world, and I think that that got a lot more attention at a certain, you know, during a certain portion of Christianity than it gets now. Um, I think something happens around the time of the Renaissance where people are somewhat comfortable with the transcendent God. Actually, I think they're moving him out of the apartment building, so to speak, and off into a deist apartment where he can be all by himself and we can do what we want. But um, the early church fathers felt that God was imminent in everything. You know, and they were there, you know, you read Augustine, the doctrine of Christianity says, look at the world as a book that can be read. Mm-hmm. And um, so everything in the universe really has a sacramental quality to it in that it both is a sign of grace, it points toward God, but it also participates in the being of God. Um, that idea of the Lagos got me thinking a lot about Tolkien. Uh, partly because of the beauty of his landscape descriptions, because his landscapes are so alive. His forests talk, but even even his mountains seem to have intentions. And uh, I thought, here we have a medievalist working with a very, very traditional idea of God's relation to the universe and trying to get it into a work of art. Hmm. So I was interested in taking the idea of sacramentality a bit farther than I thought some other authors had, had done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I appreciated that. Cause I think, um, I think you do sustain, uh, you sustain that claim. And I, I was, uh, I haven't read everything, but I've read a good bit on Tolkien and, uh, I, I'd always, sort of felt that he wasn't being done justice in that area and as I was reading your book I kept thinking oh yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. that makes sense <laughs> there was well, a, a good bit of head nodding <laughs> there, there's one line in one of the letters to him that I, I really think gets it and uh, the letter writer says that I have the feeling when I read you that you have a universe which is lit by an invisible lamp mm. that's the idea of eminence coming through yeah and and of course that kind of universe is just inherently meaningful Mm -hmm. as we i think almost by habit inhabit a universe which is largely materialistic and not meaningful it's it's what we're taught (laughs) right yeah yeah in middle earth it matters that you cut down a tree because it might hit back Yes, (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) or at least grown Yeah. yeah Yeah, I wanted to follow up on one uh, brief mention that you make in chapter three. Um, it, it connects with um, the the Johannine uh, themes that you kind of weave throughout the the book. The the idea of the logos throughout the book, but you note that Tolkien had a and this is your phrase. Well, his phrase actually. You quote a letter that Tolkien had a special devotion to Saint John. Yes. So. Many of our listeners, like me, are coming from Protestant church backgrounds where that sounds unusual, at least. So could you explain what that would mean to for Tolkien personally? What what would that look like? Um, you, prob- you probably remember what I quoted from this essay, The Ulsterior Motive, that he never published. Would you mind if I read that, if I can find it anymore? Yeah, go ahead. 
get it out of my book here. Uh, you know, Tolkien and Lewis were very close, very good friends, although their relationship um, cooled a little bit. And this is a memory that Tolkien had from one of the earlier points in their relationship. And he says, um, We were coming down the steps from Maudlin Hall long ago in the days of our unclouded association, before there was anything, as it seemed, that must be withheld or passed over in silence. I said that I had a special devotion to St. John. Lewis stiffened, his head went back, and he said in the brusque, harsh tones, which I was later to hear him use again when dismissing something he disapproved of, I can't imagine any two persons more dissimilar. We stumped along the cloisters, and I followed, feeling like a shabby Catholic caught by the eye of an evangelical clergyman of good family taking holy water at the door of a church. A door had slammed. Never now should I be able to say in his presence, Boat Christus, Mercy, and Mary, and John, these are the grund of all amiblis. Mm. Earl. A poem that Lewis disliked, and supposed that I was sharing anything of, uh, excuse me, a poem that Lewis disliked, and supposed that I was sharing anything of my vision of a great rude screen through which one could see the Holy of Holies. Um... I was intrigued by that phrase, a great rude screen through which one could see the Holy of Holies. Mm -hmm. um, I think that gets a, a kind of Catholic sensibility, which, as I was saying previous to the interview, uh, was not the easiest for me as a former Missouri Synod Lutheran to get into. Um, if you're really culturally Catholic, you... Um, tend to see the saints as an evocation of Christ, I think, that all of these people in their various different ways show some way in which a human being has conformed himself to Christ, and they may be different kinds of ways. Hmm. In a sense, they're like our Hall of Fame. Um, and uh, just as I used to really hope to get an Al Kaline baseball card when I was a kid, uh, you know, Catholics collect uh, their saints' cards, which usually have a prayer on the back uh, invoking the saint. Um, Catholics don't exactly pray to saints. They ask saints to pray for them in the way that any of us might ask uh, a friend to pray for them. Um, so, Lua, uh, excuse me, uh, Tolkien... Tolkien's patron saint was St. John. Tolkien was born on the feast day of St. John. Hmm. Maybe it made a difference that Tolkien's name was St. John, uh, but that is the saint that he sort of picked as the one that he was particularly interested in. Hmm. Uh, and, of course, that keys into my thesis very nicely. So, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that if you take a look, especially at the way that Tolkien uses light mm -hmm. in the it seems very Joannine to me. Uh, we get these incredible tableaus where a kind of holy light becomes a very important thing, and it's as if one beam hits the character. Um, the disembodied head of the, the sculpted king at the crossroads with the coronal of flowers around it, light hits it. Frodo uh, in Rivendell when Arwen gazes at him. 
the morning light on the Rohirrim before the charge and on, on Eowyn's hair. And we get the demonic reversal of that, too. So you get the dualistic sense of it. Uh, we get Sauron's eye scanning the landscape, trying to find Frodo on Ammonhen when uh, Gandalf is saying, fool, fool, take off the ring, take off the ring. Of course, Frodo doesn't know it's Gandalf, but uh, mm. uh, later it is. So I think that there's just a lot of uh, a lot of Johannine sensibility in the book. Yeah. Well, yeah. now what I now I would agree that having been pointed out to me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, you alluded to this earlier. Uh, the the angel that we're not going to say that much about in the creation story. Well, now now I guess is the time for it. Um, because in chapter four, you take up the idea of sin, human and otherwise, and you argue, if I understand you correctly, that evil in Tolkien's world is ultimately a kind of perversion of creativity. Yes, and, and uh, a perversion not only of God's creation, but a perversion of human or elvish sub-creation as well. So it really begins with Morgoth. It really begins with his desire to create in the same way that Iluvatar creates. But the one thing that eludes Morgoth is um, what Tolkien calls the flame imperishable. And um, Tolkien never really gives us a specific definition of what he means by that. Um, it, but it seems to me to include at least the spirit of free will. So, in a later myth in the Silmarillion, one of the Valar, Aule, who is very much like the um, character Hyphaestus or Vulcan, decides to make the dwarves. But all they are is dolls. He can't make them move. He can't make them do anything of their free will until Luvidar comes along, scolds him for having disobeyed an order to uh, wait for the uh, first children of Luvidar to come along. These would be the elves. And he says, uh, I'll tell you what, since your heart was in the right place, I will give your dwarves free will. I'll give them the flame imperishable, but not until after the elves awake. Okay. So Morgoth is so frustrated that he can't create in this way that he tries to destroy everybody else's creation. At the music of the Iluvatar in the, in the creation chapter, the Ainulan Daily at the beginning of the Silmarillion, He's, he's kind of like a maniacal drummer trying to drown out everybody else. And he's able to do that. Uh, he silences some of the Valar, and he makes some of the other ones go off key, which I would certainly do, you know, in a choir hearing somebody else going off key. I immediately follow them. <laughs> um, it's a it's a idea that runs all the way through Tolkien uh, about the evil of denying free will to people. So um, I think that Morgoth's fit, which goes all the way through the Silmarillion, is one involved in a, a kind of jealousy and frustration that he can't create. So he wants to mar the creation that's there. So we find out toward the end of the uh, Lord of the Rings that elves, uh, orcs used to be elves. They've been tortured into the form of orcs. Trolls used to be Ents. They've been tortured into the form of um, trolls. 
uh, evil proceeds by way of subtraction. And this is simply very Augustinian. Evil cannot create, it can only mar and subtract. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part of the introduction of evil is um, when you fall in love with your own subcreated object and it becomes more important to you as a thing of your own, a product of your own ego, than a part of God's universe. And in treating it that way, you're denying it its sacramentality. So a a theologian who influenced a lot of my discussion was Alexander Schmemann, and he talks about Eve's taking of the fruit and, and Adam's eating it in the Garden of Eden. He emphasizes that outstretched hand that wants to grasp and appropriate only for itself without regard to God or how that piece of fruit fits into that divine plan. Um, in the Silmarillion, the person who falls victim to that is Feanor, the greatest elvish artisan of all time who creates these jewels, the Silmarils. And uh, as part of their creation, they have the light of the two trees, Teleparion and Laurelin, that provide light in this sort of beautiful Edenic paradise where the, the elves and the Valar dwell. When Morgoth comes with um, one of Shelob's ancestors on Goliath and destroys those trees of light, they have a little life left in them, and they can be revived, but to revive them you would have to destroy the Silmarils, releasing the light that they contain back into the trees to start them growing again. And Feanor says, I can't do this, it would kill me, because I will never be able to create anything this good again. And at the moment that he says that, Morgoth and Ungoliant attack his home, which is a long, long way away, kill his father, grab the Silmarils and hightail it for another part of Middle-earth, setting up a series of very, very tragic events in which the Silmarils are pursued. So what Fanor had to do, if he could have done it, was sacrifice the Silmarils, uh, the essence of love, is self-sacrifice. It's this canonic giving out of oneself. Time after time, in The Lord of the Rings, of course, people also fail at that canonic giving out. Um, The ring causes um, Isildur to fail, um, Aragorn's ancestor, Uh, causes Boromir to fail. He wants to reach out and grasp it. Everybody realizes what the problem is. Um, but some people think they can surmount it anyway. Denethor would like the ring. Um, I think it's a it's a stroke of genius that this is a quest story in which we're trying to get away. We're trying to give away something. Yeah. Um, it's the exact opposite of that hand reaching out and appropriating. It's the hand that's got to reach out and open up and let something go. Yeah. <laughs> you you join it in uh in one passage. You actually. Uh, invoke uh, Hitchcock, and, yes, and uh, sort of an, an inverted MacGuffin story. Um, yeah. I highlighted a quote. You say MacGuffin stories are representations of naked human desire and how it haunts us. And I had never thought of the Lord of the Rings that way, and it changed a lot. So, what, what you want to unpack the MacGuffin? 
<laughs> well, of course, the, Mac the MacGuffin. How many MacGuffin stories are there? Uh, <laughs> are always what people are after. Uh, the jewel heist, the, uh, the, the, the papers in Casablanca that are supposed to get you uh, out of the country. Mm -hmm. um, the Maltese Falcon. The Maltese Falcon is absolutely the best one, and that, that gang of rascals <laughs> that are all after it. Uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I mean, we could we could go on forever if we thought and, and make a long list of stories like this. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd never thought of the MacGuffin story as being not just a, a a sort of mechanical and almost kind of hackneyed plot device, but actually a really incisive commentary on what's wrong with the human heart. <laughs> yes, I mean it's it's interesting how it relates to the relates to the quest story. Say something like the search for the Holy Grail and work to Arthur. Um, but the different thing about the Grail is, at least, it ought to come to sac symbolize self sacrificing love and the recovery of that, mm -hmm. rather than the, the recovery of something that you want just for yourself. And when Arthur gets it, and uh, he, like the Fisher King, you know, he's able to drink the cup and revive the kingdom. So mm -hmm. it has that, that little different sense to it. But most most MacGuffin stories seem to me to fit exactly the what you've described there. Yeah. <laughs> They're greed. Yeah. Well I see I see our clock winding down, so I'm I'm gonna get selective and pick some favorite bits from my second half. Uh, the second half of the book if that's okay. Sure. Um Chapter uh, chapter five, you move beyond the idea of sacramentality generally. That um, the outworking of the music of of Iluvatar uh, is kind of generally in Middle Earth, informing it, um, giving it a holiness. But you go specific in chapter five and bring in the theology of baptism to bear uh, yes. on the Lord of the Rings, and you've managed to convince me that every time. Frodo gets wet, his life changes. Um, <laughs> but our listeners may be a little more skeptical. So if you could take up baptism. <laughs> okay, well, I mentioned three episodes. I call it Frodo's baptismal career. The first is when he's nearly drowned by old man Willow. Uh, the second is when he and the other hobbits are captured by the Barrow White. And the third is when he fords the Bruinen. I think that it's probably easiest to see well, well, they all have important baptismal um, characteristics. Baptism, first of all, is, is a death and a rebirth. Um, you die to who you were before, and you rise out of the water a new person. So, um, broadly speaking, it's going to have that kind of imagery. And we get help. We get an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is supposed to help us for the rest of our lives. It's supposed to make a difference. In the first scene, Old Man Willow takes a root and dunks Frodo and, and buries alive, essentially, Pippin and Merry. And Sam and Frodo are helpless to get them out. Sam saves Frodo. Frodo just goes running along the riverbank uh, yelling, help, 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 which reminds me of uh, what St. Paul has to say in Romans about uh, the Holy Spirit helping us to pray with groans and cries, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Doing it even though we don't realize it. And lo and behold, grace appears in the figure of Tom Bombadil, who knows just how to sing 
Mary and Pippin out of the roots of, of Old Man Willow. Also, it happens to be raining the entire time that they're there, and it happens to be Goldberry's laundry day, her, her laundry day out of the whole year. And there's a sense of being washed clean in that house of Tom Bombadil. Uh, they become very merry, happy hobbits after a, after a harrowing trip. And when they leave, they get a kind of benediction from Goldberry. They turn back and they see her holding her arms up, you know, uh, on top of the hill. So, although you only need to be baptized once as a Christian, I think Tolkien's point is to track the change in the hobbits, and especially Frodo during the beginning part of the journey. And, of course, baptism is the first sacrament that we receive. The next big one owes a lot to the book of Jonah, hmm. which Tolkien translated for the Jerusalem Bible. Hmm. And um, and if, if you read Tolkien's translation in the Jerusalem Bible, or for that matter, any translation, you'll see a lot of imagery that gets imported into the Barrow-White um, business. Uh, especially in Jonah's there's a description of Jonah going down, down into this old world of relics from ancient kingdoms and things like this, which you absolutely get in the Barrow of the Barrow White. The hobbits wake up and they're, they're decked with this stuff. But I think the most interesting imagery is that the fog is described as water and the hill they're on is described as an island. And so the fog comes over the top of the island. They're in a kind of bowl like a big tidal wave and engulfs them. And it's sort of, in a dreamlike way, transformed into a house over their heads with one pillar, this stone pillar that they're by. And uh, so as if at that point they're entombed. Well, they flee, but then they wind up back in the barrow. And uh, they have to sing again, calling for Tom Bombadil's aid to get them out. He gets them out. And as was the case with early... Christians, uh, he has them take off their clothes and run naked and, uh, believe, gives them white, uh, white shirts to wear. Now, this is exactly what happened in early Christian baptism. You went in all the way. You came out. You were anointed with uh, oil. I mean, you came out naked out of the amniotic fluid of Mother Church, right? It changed human being. Mm -hmm. So getting both the death, burial, and rebirth uh, idea into it, they come out of the tomb as if they're coming out of a womb. Changed, changed hobbits. Um, the third, I think, is is really interesting as well because when Frodo goes across the Bruin, although he he's not exactly dunked, um, we get this great picture of the Black Riders being washed away by a tidal wave conjured up by, um, I believe it's Glorfindel, the elf who is with uh, Gandalf. And Gandalf takes some credit for the artistic touches. He comes up with the riders, the white riders, and a very Pentecostal symbol, the, a flame on the top of each horse that's uh, coming down the river that, that hits the black riders' horses. Hmm. It's, a, it's a very vivid image to me of sin being washed away. Uh, especially the Pentecostal part. He, he gets a, another little variation in there. Um, of course, told, uh, Frodo gets to Rivendell and they, they dig the little tip of the Morgul blade out of him and, and he, is, he is saved, which is a, another great image of kind of sin and corruption being removed. 
Um, all that said to me, baptism. And I think that the hobbits are very reluctant to leave the Shire. And so mixed up with this is the idea that they are fighting against the sin of sloth, mm. uh, a desire to not really want to get on the road. They go to sleep with Old Man Willow. They go to sleep in the Barrow Downs. And um, baptism really is the start of your life as a Christian. It's what gets you on the road. So that's what I made out of that altogether. Yeah, I, th I thought that made a lot of sense. And uh, especially the the... The Fort of uh, the Fort of Bruin story. Um, it reminded me of uh, the beginning of First Corinthians ten when it compares the the passage of uh, the Israelites led by Moses through the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, it describes that as a baptism, as you know, when they went through the sea, they were baptized into Moses. And I kept thinking of the crossing of the water that then sweeps away the evil pursuers. I'm like, yes. I'm like, oh yeah, it's Frodo's very own Red Sea crossing. I wish I would have cited that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's one of the things I loved about this book is that it made me kind of revisit all of these, all of those moments, and I said, now I'm equipped with this image of of. of baptismal uh stuff where else can i see it yeah <laughs> there there very well maybe more more places yes well um chapter six uh i liked as well because it situated the actions and the decisions of characters um inside of god's story you have this this idea that at the back of all Middle Earth is this song that, that of which Iluvatar uh, is the composer. So all these things working out are, in some sense, God's story. Yet one in which there is uh, the freedom of the particular created beings. So how does the Lord of the Rings treat divine providence and human freedom as in cooperation? Wow, that's a tough question. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, Tolkien said that some things, truths that you had to say, could only be said in the form of myth. And I think that this is probably one of them. Uh, every time I read an explanation of how providence and free will go together, I tend to get a headache. Uh, but clearly, the characters in the book believe that they're working within a larger divine plan. Um, Someday when I read it again, I'd like to count up all the times that somebody says, usually Gandalf or Elrond, uh, by chance, if chance it were, or something along those lines. It happens just constantly. And especially at the Council of Elrond, where they are trying to put together a complete narrative of the ring so they know what they have to do. I think, you know, we get the... We get the metaphor right at the beginning of the Silmarillion in the creation of the world when the Valar are allowed to have free will, but Iluvatar propounds the themes that they're supposed to embellish on. We also find out that Iluvatar has surprises in mind that, that none of the Valar know all of the music that's been incorporated. So, so Tolkien says, things will happen age after age which could not have been predicted. Hmm. Um... I think I'm not going to be able to work out free will versus providence, <laughs> uh, but simply to say that both of them are there. I mean, uh, yeah. Tolkien clearly accepts the Orthodox Catholic idea that there is providence and that there is there is free will, and that somehow these things are 
are woven together. I would, I would also say one other thing. Um, this chapter is where I thought I would begin the book. I thought I was writing a book about Tolkien and narrative. And the problem that was on my mind, I guess, is the idea that we've lost the idea that there isn't a, um, a grand narrative. There isn't an idea which is people are more suspicious of in criticism and critical theory today than the idea that there actually is a correct grand narrative. Um, but I think that people long for one. And I think that that may be one reason why people love Tolkien so much. This desire to be able to make sense out of things within a grand narrative, to be able to take your personal narrative and plug it into a bigger narrative that makes sense. Mm. Uh, you see Sam and Frodo working it out on the stairs of Kirith Ungol, don't you, where Sam mm. says, holy smokes, Mr. Frodo, we're, we're in the same story that um, Baron and Luthien were in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a way to orient yourself, give your life meaning. Yeah. Well, also, and this was kind of a a side note, uh, a thought I had as I was reading it, that that's precisely the uh, one of the functions that, um, uh, especially the sacraments of baptism and uh, communion, the sacrament of the Eucharist, both of those are meant to remind us that we are inside of the stories the Gospels tell. Yes, we're inside the big story, and I and I think that you know. It, at the Council of Elrond especially, you see a kind of assumption that if they can combine this communal story about the history of the ring in a way which is convincing, it will be worthy of belief. Mm. And for me, personally, just the way that the Gospels work out is, for me, they compel belief. The mm. um, story is just one that demands that I believe it, you know. Um, I don't know uh, that arguments have ever been that important with me. I mean, apologetics are interesting, but finally when it comes down to it, it's the power of the story that is convincing in a way that is hard to describe. Another thought that I had while I was reading this chapter, um, I, I know that Dorothy Sayers and Tolkien were uh, contemporaries and were in, 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 in some ways... Uh, associated. Do we know if Tolkien ever read Sayers' Mind of the Maker? I, I kept thinking of that book as I was reading this chapter. Uh, you know, when I when I got your email, I actually went upstairs. I've had that book on my shelf for a long time, but I haven't I haven't read it. Ah, and, oh, sorry. And uh, now I'm going to have to read it. Uh, the only connection that I I know that's explicit between Tolkien and Sayers is from one of Tolkien's letters where he positively hates Lord Peter Whimsey. Aww. And he mentions two of her detective stories, and he says, I just can't stand him. <laughs> um, now, how he would have felt about her theology, I uh, I don't know. I don't know. I rather like it myself. I have read uh, Creed or Chaos, and yes. I, I like that book a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, my Mind of the Maker is... Uh, She's she's doing something that seemed to me to have strong connections with this chapter, in that she's trying to think through um, not only Trinitarian theology but also the idea of of God's uh, God's action as Creator and Ordainer alongside of our actions as as uh, creatures, but to yes. say that there's a there's a mutual 
dignity in them that's similar to an author who cares about uh, his or her characters um, writing a novel that nonetheless respects the the freedom of these created uh, characters. And so I'm reading this chapter thinking, Tolkien's doing that. He's making characters who know they're in a story and yet nonetheless have the responsibility to behave responsibly inside the story. Well, well, I hope that Tolkien and Dorothy Sayers at some point got to have a mutual appreciation session about this because <laughs> Tolkien talks so much about uh, being given the story. Yeah. And it took him a long time to write it. He waited until he thought that the answer would come to him. Mm. Um, so it seemed to me that you know, Tolkien, in the sense of giving his characters freedom, freedom to um, do what they would do, what they would do, uh, given the parameters of the story that he's set up. It's a complicated relationship. We we don't have, except maybe for the eagles. I don't think Tolkien ever jumps the shark, <laughs> and, and that's a, <laughs> that's a very difficult thing to do to uh, come up with a. Uh, a believable plot and characters who would carry it out believably uh, an intricate uh, thing to do especially over a novel that long so yeah, yeah well I, I i mean sometimes the eagles he gets accused of deus ex machina but if you read on fairy stories he's all about the happy ending that comes out of nowhere Yes, he is. He is. <laughs> so you know, if it, it, can't leave Frodo to roast on the slopes of Mount Doom. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You call it Deus Ex Machina. We'll call it Grace. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I guess I want to uh, get to my get to my last question and then turn the helm over to you, if I may. Um, chapter nine talks about confession and penance. Um, we've already brought up the idea of how evil works in Tolkien's world, and so we need to need to talk about the possibility of redemption and what happens if you don't take that opportunity. So, how is repentance the a way from a way to salvation from uh, what you call abiding in death? Yeah, and why is it so tragic when that ref, when that re- chance of repentance is refused? Well, I go back to C.S. Lewis on this. I think that his description of hell uh, really comes in handy here. Um, as Lewis said, the gates of hell are barred from the inside. Mm. Uh, so ultimately, they're barred by human pride. And uh, Herbert McCabe, a Dominican uh, theologian who I use quite a bit in the book, says that a person who doesn't repent is very much like a, a young boy who's done something bad, and he's sitting in a corner pounding and pouting. He's blowed if he'll apologize, right? That's, yeah. that's McCabe's phrase. So um, the difficulty of repentance, of course, is that we have to be humble enough to acknowledge our faults, and this involves a kind of death Dying to the self, at least this false egotistical sense of self that we we carry around with us. Um, We have two successful repentances in The Lord of the Rings. One is by Boromir and the other is by Pippin after he takes the Palantir. Boromir repents um, very actively by uh, trying to defend Merry and uh, Pippin 
and also confessing to Aragorn before he dies that, that he's done something wrong. Pippin confesses almost immediately to Gandalf when he's um, found to have taken the Palantir. And Gandalf recognizes it as a, as a true confession. He looks right into right into his souls. I guess I should say there are other. Uh, there's another sequence of what I call confessions when Galadriel looks into the hearts of the Fellowship. But mm. we'll leave that aside for for now. The big failure is Saruman, who is given a chance to repent six times. Finally, at the end, by Frodo. And uh, when he is finally killed at the very end in the Shire. They see his soul like a big cloud going up out of his body, and he looks toward the west, the land of the the Valar, essentially uh, paradise, longingly while his form is just dispersed, just just fails to um, exist anymore, apparently. Uh, repentance is this act of dying to yourself, this necessary act of putting your own ego aside and, oh, I don't know, embracing, embracing reality um, and generosity and everything that goes along with that. Very hard thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> Very hard thing to do. Um, and I should and I say one other thing. I mean, Tolkien as a Catholic, especially a pre-Vatican II Catholic, would have gone to confession a lot. I mean, the, the rule was you go to confession before every Mass in those days. Now they, they check up on you once a year, you know, so mm. it's, it's, it's a little bit different. But one of the things I found about being Catholic, which was remarkably different from my experience as being a Lutheran, was confession. Um, the New Testament says, confess your sins to each other. So the Catholic Church ba basically said, how can we make this less of a problem for people. Confessing to the whole congregation, that might be a problem. Confessing to a church council, that might be really hard to do. Well, let's just pick one person and let's put that person behind a, a screen so they don't even know who you are. And now we've, we've, we've followed that New Testament injunction uh, in as, as lenient a way as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, confession is difficult, confession to another person. Um, even if they try to make it as relaxed and informal <laughs> as, as possible. I found this out as a Catholic. Um, so uh, it's a lesson uh, in, I think, what we ultimately are called on to do. If, if you look at classical rules of ethical behavior, it's about living a life which is reasonable and rational. That's hard enough to do all by itself. To, to be temperate and to have fortitude and, uh, and you know, to, to do justice, to live up to the four cardinal virtues. Um, we're asked to do something more. Uh, it's, it's not just to do what we need to do to have a good life, but to go beyond the good life, even to the point where we're willing to give it up. So <laughs> I think that's confession and Tolkien. Um, what else can I say about it? <laughs> I can't think of anything. Well, I guess I could I, I could turn the wheel over to you. Uh, I've been steering the conversation so far, uh, but if there's anything that uh, we haven't discussed yet in the book that you really want to present to our listeners, or if there's any point that we've brought up so far you'd like to return to, 
Um, you have as much time as you want to take. <laughs> well, I will just end with a big question, Mark. I think that's the best way always to end with a book. And this is Tom, this is Tom Bombadil. Uh, the wonderful Tom Bombadil, this creation that Tolkien uh, made just for his children, separate poems, and then imports into The Lord of the Rings. Who or what is Tom Bombadil? Um, I sort of fell in love with Tom Bombadil. I mean, remember my first couple of readings of The Lord of the Rings. What's this screwball doing in here? You know? <laughs> what, what's the point? Um, he seems to be to me to be sinless. He, the ring has no power over him. And the closest I can come to Bombadil is maybe he's an expression of the joy of creation in the small part of Middle Earth that he has control of, the Withy uh, Windle River Valley. I love the scene where he looks through the ring and they see that big blue eye through the ring because it's a parody of the eye of Sauron. Uh, and But this is such a jolly blue eye in comparison. And, uh, and Bombadil basically just tells them, don't take Sauron so seriously. Mm. Um, of course, they have to take him seriously, but uh, he's a wonderful uh, laugh at evil, at the whole evil enterprise, which seems, at least in Tolkien's understanding, bound to fail because it will destroy itself, because there is so little love, so little being left in it, that there cannot possibly be enough social cohesion to hold it together. Mm. Um, so I guess what I would leave with is, I hope that as we go into the future, we have enough social cohesion to hold us together. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's remember Bombadil. <laughs> yeah, and uh, keep, keep laughing at evil instead of uh, letting it swell itself up the way it wants to. Maybe we shouldn't give it as much serious attention as it wants. I mean, we should have to pay attention, of course, but maybe we should be optimistic. We have every reason to be. Awesome. Okay. Well, I appreciate you agreeing to come on to this episode, sir. I've enjoyed this conversation a lot, and I think our listeners will as well. Well, I've enjoyed it too. Thanks a lot. Well, dear listeners, that's all we have time for in this episode. Um, I'm David Grubbs. I've been talking to Dr. Craig Bernthal, author, author of Tolkien's Sacramental Vision, Discerning the Holy in Middle-Earth, uh, published by Angelico Press. If you'd like to comment or ask questions about today's episode, you can leave those on the show notes on our blog, christianhumanist.org, or send them via email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. In the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs, wishing you all the grandest of weeks. Christian Humanist Profiles is a podcast on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Zach Spitt. Be sure to watch for the next Christian Humanist Profiles. <laughs>